0: Ari am here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. This week's topic, episode number 247. Can't believe we're going to be almost at 250, which means that we will be, uh, you know, it's almost five years of this. Uh, and uh, thankfully, uh, most of you have uh, uh, still, you know, been avid listeners. But uh, anyway, this week's topic, we're going to talk about... Uh, small steps, uh, kind of these small, actually, these small things that k client sponsors uh, forget. And of course, as always, uh, check out that 4k for further information on what we're doing. Uh, we will be back live on Thursday, June 15th, 4 p.m. Eastern, with that 4K virtual bunch, the retirement plan roundtable, shores web. Holland and I, um, we're going to talk about some of the stuff that's going on in the 401k world and stuff that's not going on in the 401k world. We even had a discussion about our favorite movies and all that kind of stuff. And, of course, that 401k National Virtual Conference in January. Also, uh, that uh, 401k Virtual Plan Sponsor Conference, that's in October. And I actually talked to Larry and I. Larry uh, had a conversation with me uh, yesterday when we talked about, you know, Trying to drop support for 2024, run a couple of live events. Probably, you know, thinking certainly New York area. Maybe we go back to MetLife Stadium. Um, We'll see what happens. But uh, small things. Um, Back in April, we had this holiday, my favorite holiday. One of my favorite Jewish holidays. It's Passover. My favorite holiday is probably Thanksgiving of all. But um, Passover is kind of an interesting holiday because in Judaism, you're not supposed to eat leavened items from five species of grains, which, uh, you know, they didn't teach me in Hebrew school, but it it is wheat, barley, and three similar grains. We can't eat for eight days, so we can't eat bread, uh, yeast, and all that kind of stuff. Um, And and one of the dumb—and I I contend it's a dumb rule. I think that the people who are more religious than I am would say it's not dumb— But we have a weird rule that if you're from, you know, Europe, if you're a European Jew, if, you know, my parents, one side is Polish, the other side is Hungarian, we have this rule, we still have it today, and it's actually a custom more than a rule, and it's kidney oat. You're not allowed to eat kidney oat, which are these small things. That includes some stuff like rice, corn, sunflower seeds, sesame seeds, beans, peas, and lentils. So, if you're a Sephardic Jew, which means you kind of are from, you know, originally from Spain, but you got thrown out in 1492, but, you know, Morocco, Syria, uh, mostly Greece, uh, if you're that Turkish, Yemenite, Egyptian, and Racky and all that kind of stuff. you are a Sephardic Jew, you don't follow that kind of custom. and it's a nonsense. I always say it's it's nonsense. The people in Poland didn't know what rice was and a uh, rabbi that I'm friendly with defends it. he says, well, you know in those days you have a silo with uh, with, uh, with rice. You, you can't tell if there's you know uh, leaven over there and I think it's a lot of nonsense, especially today we know what rice is. We know what a chickpea is, Um, there's, you know, no reason why we can't eat them. And in Israel today, uh, it's interesting, Um, they're pushing for people to give up that kidney out rule. Um, My branch of Judaism says it's, it's a, you know, you don't have to follow it anymore, but, you know, like a moron, I still follow it, but that's just my belief. But anyway, there are a lot of small things that uh, 401k plan sponsors really should focus on, and they keep on forgetting about it. And obviously, uh, the late deposit side of deferrals. Um, You know, uh, right now, um, you know, I will always have clients with those issues. They forgot to defer um, on a timely basis. I mean, they forgot to deposit on a timely basis. In the old days, we used to, Rely on that 15th day of the following month, and obviously, with changes and ACH and payroll, there is no reason why a 4K plan sponsor should hold on to a participant's the deferrals for more than just a handful of days. Money goes in, money goes out one, two, three. In the old days, um, when everything you know took five days to clear, I remember those days you go to a bank and you deposit a check, it was a local check, it was three days, it was a Out of state check was five days. And of course, there are extra holds. You know, if you had more than 10 grand as a deposit, I think you almost had a two week wait. But thanks to ACH, uh, things clear a little bit quicker. And so there's absolutely no reason that a plan sponsor should hold on to participants' money. So that's why the Department of Labor said a few years ago, quite a few years ago, saying, listen, you got to get in as soon as possible. The problem with salary deferrals and late deposit is that you, you know, it's like uh, what was it uh, the the remember Lay's potato chips you can you can't just you know you can't just eat one chip well when a plant sponsor is they never just miss one payroll if you miss one payroll you miss multiple payrolls and it's a fascinating concept because it it should be uh, it, you know it, it should be mechanical you know every payroll boom you you got the payroll send it to the four one k account it should be. You know, so learned, uh, so learned it, you know you can't forget it, but it happens quite some time. you know and I it's one of the most constant um, most frequent and consistent errors out there that a plant sponsor goes through. And obviously on form 5500, you say, you know, by the way, um, you know, we're late on deposits. That's a trigger for an audit, and that's a trigger for a letter from the Department of Labor saying, "Hey, by the way, we saw you got late uh, deposits, and uh, we don't have an application for the uh, Voluntary Fiduciary Compliance Program. Maybe you should submit it." But I think it's becoming so frequent now that the Department of Labor is having a rolling out a testing pilot program where people, plan sponsors, can self-correct it. Uh, and probably do away with it, because I think the Department of Labor these days is probably, the EPSA office is probably inundated with these uh, these forms and applications when I think that they, uh, self-correction is probably the way to go. Yeah, it would cost me money because I'm not, you know, wouldn't be applying anymore, but, you know, it's labor-intensive. Uh, it's a pain in the rear end, and so that's why um, I think that uh, it's important that we, uh, you know, plain sponsors take care of it. Next on the list, um, again another frequent error, getting the right definition of compensation. Um, it happens so. I mean, lately it's just it's just the constant error. Um, I remember years ago working for um, a TPA, and you know, have one plane sponsor was a out of the box definition compensation because it was a automotive group in in Florida, and. Um, they didn't want to, you know, match or give a profit-sharing contribution or allow people to defer on the uh, car uh, usage. You know, you give uh, salespeople a car to use, and that's a taxable fringe benefit. And so we don't want to include it. But, you know, being a car dealership, it wasn't a problem. But the problem is a lot of times plan sponsors put in a definition of compensation that's kind of out of the box they completely forget that it's included and don't offer a, you know, salary deferral opportunity or employer contributions on those amounts, and that becomes a problem. You know, the bonus, I think, is a perfect example. A bonus is a perfect example. Uh, most of the plan sponsors I know include bonuses. Problem is, is they don't allow salary deferrals on it. They don't have a, they don't allow it, or they don't, you know, they don't have that, Special sal- sal- salary deferral election, and that causes a problem because you have a missed deferral opportunity. If you don't correct it in a specific amount of time, uh, employer is going to have to put in a qualified non-elective contribution, and that comes out of their pocketbook. And um, you know it's important that a plain sponsor understands uh, you know what they should be allowing deferrals on and base their contributions on, and that it's consistent. Because if you do it in practice, it's got to be in your plain document. Otherwise, you have a plain error, and it's got to be fixed. And of course, you know, the problem is, is that if you uh, put in definitions of compensation that are out of the box, like bonuses or, you know, some other differential, um, it's, you know, something that has to be tested for discrimination. So, I kind of think that it's better to just have straight you know w2 comp and um if you want to use from participants entry dates you can do that but outside of that i just like to keep it simple you know it go goes to my doctrine of keep it simple stupid uh if you keep things uh, very very simple uh the chances of errors are uh, uh lesser than if you try to be extravagant or cute and start excluding these pieces of compensation don't really mean, mean anything. You're talking a couple of bucks here and there. So I th- you know to me, why why start a problem? And you get so many of those W-2 non-414S Safe Harbor contribution question uh, compensation questions and like, Why why do that? So that that's always a problem. Uh, next, you know, a little thing that plant sponsors kind of neglect is the census information request. Either they do it too late or they provide inaccurate information. Um, It always reminds me, I always say garbage in, garbage out. So years ago, um, I always tell the story, I got a friend of mine, she has her own little TPA. She had a plan sponsor client that had used one of the payroll providers. uh, You know, there's really only, when I say payroll providers, I mean one of the two largest payroll companies in the country. Um, She told me, Client got a census request. Identify who your key employees are, and not understanding that the definition of key employee for purposes of top heavy are a little different than what an employer thinks is a key employee. They identified everybody as a key employee. I think it was a cleaning service, including you know some of these cleaners who do a bang up job but only make thirty thousand dollars. And payroll provider said, "Oh, you know, by the way, you're top heavy." because they identified everybody as a key employee. Well, that's not how it works. And, you know, the census information has to be done uh, timely because that holds up the testing and compliance ends. And, you know, there's no reason why you should extend past July 31st to file 5500. Uh, and obviously, if you don't fill out that census information on a timely basis, that pushes you probably off to October 15th. But, it's important uh, not only you know the information on salaries and all that be accurate, but also we want run into a lot of problems on the control group affiliate service group model. Uh, we always have to do an analysis, and sometimes plan sponsors aren't you know aren't uh, aren't transparent. They don't disclose. Oh, by the way, somebody here owns five, ten, fifteen, twenty percent of these companies, and we run into a whole host of problems as a result. Next, um, use of forfeitures. Uh, it, it's its an interesting concept where I jokingly say that there, there are people who create a war chest, uh, Plan sponsors create a war chest because they keep on adding forfeitures and not allocating it or using it to pay plan expenses or additional contribution as the plan document allows. So, of course, um, as we know, um, plan participants that are not fully vested, we still have that rule. We still have vesting schedules. You know, they, they terminate. I never was able to work in a place where I would be fully vested, except uh, Myers did have a, a 100% vested schedule. But any place else that they had a schedule, you know, I forfeited. Those forfeitures go into the forfeiture account. Part of the plan document, you know, ever since I think the GUST documents, uh, you can use it to pay plan expenses, but you can use it to reallocate or reduce employer contribution. And in my opinion, reducing and reallocate is almost the same thing if you think about it. Uh, but the problem is again, plan sponsors didn't reallocate part of the you know, provision or use it to reduce or use it to pay plan expenses, and they build a war trust. And unfortunately, that's not fair. If I'm a plan participant for one year and I'm not the next, and the plan document said you needed to reallocate, well, I should have gotten a portion of that forfeiture. Uh, if I'm not there next year or five years from now when the plan sponsor, you know, decides to finally do something about it because it's a whole, you know, big, you know, big amount of money, then I've been deprived of the opportunity of getting an additional polar contribution. Or, you know, if you didn't use it to pay plant expenses, uh, maybe I pay more plant expenses because you, you know, kept this war chest going. So, um, new regs came in. Um, basically, plant sponsor, um, you know, can use it to pay plant expenses, reduce, or reallocate. And it's got to be no later than 12 months following the close of the plan year in which a forfeiture occurred. Uh, That's fine and dandy. I like that rule. Because it's supposed to be engaged, you have to run the plan according to its terms. And it's interesting that it took all the way to 2023 to get some action on it. Because again, I see plan sponsors and they would literally have a war chest for five years of forfeitures and again if it's not it's not fair to plan participants who are there one year and not the year in which forfeiture occurs or again somebody's there when the forfeiture occurs but not there in previous years and gets kind of a windfall whether the you know additional contribution or paid plan expenses you know every year uh, the plan has a different set of lineup of employees people leave all the time and people get hired all the time so you know, obviously, forfeitures is a very small little area of the retirement plans that I think a plan sponsors just too many times neglect. And thanks to the uh, new guidance, um, they're going to have that. And, you know, it's interesting. I've always had that discussion. I had a discussion with Mike Webb. I think one day I'm surprised that we haven't had more liberal vesting schedules implemented in terms of, you know, maybe doing away with the six-year schedule because I thought ever since EGTRA, uh, we were going to move to a system where all employer contributions are going to be fully vested. And maybe in my lifetime we will do that because if you look at the history of ERISA uh, and major laws, you know, across the way, we've been m- moving more and more to having smaller vesting schedules. I don't want to say, but I want to say at the start of ERISA you might have had a 15 graded schedule. I think, I, you know, I'd I have to look back in my notes but it was quite, quite long, and it's shortened to six years now. I remember when it was seven years. So, you know, uh, forfeitures, so until that time, maybe it'll be a generation or two, but until that time, we will still have forfeitures, and employers will have to, you know, do what the plain document says, which, you know, again, as an risk attorney, that comes second nature. But again, uh, the IRS certainly needed to put in some guidance and and say that that had to be done. Uh, Next on my list is going to be, uh, last but not least, not having the right ERISA bond coverage. And, you know, uh, fidelity bonds are a type of insurance against illegal acts. It's required by ERISA for any ERISA-based plans. It's called an ERISA fidelity bond. You know, it's uh, 10% of plan assets with a minimum of $1,000 and a maximum of $500,000. That's a big deal. Again, I'm not proud to say it, but I know two people convicted of embezzling, two fiduciaries convicted of embezzlement from 401k plans to the tunes of millions millions of dollars. Um, since it's required, it's a answer to this question on the 5,500, and a plan sponsor doesn't doesn't have a bond or doesn't have adequate coverage uh, if they answer that on a 5500 uh, that's a nice trigger for an audit that, that kind of gets the Department of Labor going and um, you know my story always is I had a client uh, to find better plan uh, they invested three million dollars in with Bernie Madoff and there was no ERISA bonds um, uh, fortunately for them, uh, it was such a big widespread fraud that, uh, you know, they were able to get, um, they were able to get the money back from the trustee running, uh, the Madoff, uh, what's his name, Picard was the guy, that was the trustee, but anyway, they were made whole, um, more importantly, I got them off the track of the fine benefit plan, put in a 401k plan, and, uh, 15 years later, they're still a client. But uh, again, it's important that the coverage gets increased once the plan assets increase. So, you know, uh, it happens quite a bit where a plan sponsor has, you know, a $200,000 bond and then they forget that uh, the plan now has $3 million worth of assets and they're not properly insured per ERISA. So, it's again, it's a small little thing. Um, that plan sponsors neglect and it should not be forgotten so that concludes this episode of that 4k podcast tune in next week we'll have another topic me uh, do the payroll provider one actually actually i'll be in two weeks but anyway uh tune in go to that 41 k site.com sign up for our virtual events and hopefully we'll have some live events coming next year take care bye